The Drowned Mermaid, which originally appeared in the magazine, Realms of Fantasy. This story is one of the few that take place in Southern California, where he lived for a short stint in the late 90s. Christopher Barzak wrote it after walking along a strip of beach one night, down below a short cliff where these amazingly beautiful houses were perched above with these decks that came out from the cliffside almost like small piers themselves. Down below the decks, though, he noticed groups of people huddle in sleeping bags along the breaker rocks, and asked the friend he was walking with who would be sleeping under a deck in sleeping bags like that. They're homeless, was my friend's answer, and he realized he had had trouble placing what should have been easily perceived because he found himself in a different landscape from the one he was used to back in Ohio. He started to think about the people in the amazingly beautiful houses above the decks, and the people sleeping below those decks, in their torn-up sleeping bags, and thought he saw a large tail flip out in the moon-spangled ocean, which altogether were the elements that led to the creation of this story. Welcome back to Tale 11 of Mermaids. With me your hostess Anna Karen Nina. On the morning after the storm the body of a drowned mermaid was washed ashore. She was curled in an almost S-shape, her arms thrown over her head as if to block out the glare of the sun. Her skin was pale, rubbery, and white. The kind of pale that comes from living either beneath the earth or beneath the sea. Her black hair was twisted with ropes of seaweed, and a bruise, golden brown and purple, stained the skin of her right cheek. Helena found her. She had woken that morning from another dream of her daughter Jordan, from another night of terror and mystery in which she played the lead role. She'd been in a casino this time. To the roulette table, place your bet on black 31, walk away from the wheel without collecting your winnings, and believe me, a disembodied voice told her, you'll win. Walk toward the nearest restroom, but don't go in. A man in a dark suit will meet you by the door. Take his arm. He'll bring you to me. She'd done as instructed, but as usual, never found her daughter. Never won her, never opened the locked safe without tripping the alarm. Or in another situation, she might be fooled into thinking Jordan was behind a certain door. But upon opening it, she would find nothing but a dark, empty room. As in the shell game, Helena could never pick the one under which the con man had hidden the ping-pong ball. So she had come down to the beach after waking, leaving Paul asleep in bed. The sun had just risen, dappling the waves with light, and gulls screed in the air, circling and diving over the water. From a distance the mermaid's body looked like driftwood, smooth and round, silhouetted by the morning light. It was only when Helena came closer that she noticed the scales glinting in the light, the thickly muscled tail, and after moving one of the mermaid's arms off of her face, the bulbous eyes, black and damp as olives. She knelt beside the body and rested her ear against the chilled skin. 
A sluggish pulse still pumped through those emerald veins, a slow, locomotive beat. Unconscious then, Helena decided. She stood again, turning her head one way, then the other, scanning the beach to see if anyone else had ventured down this way yet. There was no one around at this hour. But that would change soon enough. It was the end of summer. Within an hour the beach would be strewn with bodies laid out for the sun to take. A ritual sacrifice. Working quickly, she lifted the mermaid's arms and shoulders from underneath and started to drag her. She pulled her away from the hissing waves that collapsed under their own weight, turning to foam as they reached the shore. She dragged, then paused to catch her breath, then picked the mermaid up once more to go a little farther. And all the while the mermaid's head lolled on the stalk of her neck as if it had been broken. It was a long, exhausting journey. But in this way, they reached home soon enough. Home was a house perched 40 feet above the beach on the edge of a cliff in Southern California. Sleek and modern, it was filled with furniture that had been fashionable two decades before and had again come into style. There was a deck in back of the house, braced against the cliffside, and when high tide rolled in it would begin to resemble a pier, the pilings of the deck's foundation partly submerged in water. The side of the cliff was buried beneath a lumpy shell of boulders, an ad hoc seawall that served to deter any further erosion that might undermine the house's foundation. Helena and Paul had lived there for 15 years, since he took the position teaching history at the university. Before the seawall was built, they had seen whole houses fold in on themselves. The only problem to emerge since moving here, to a sleepy village by the sea, was that sometimes, often in the summer, homeless people or drifters would hole up beneath their deck. They'd stay for a day or a week, making homes, fleeting as dreams, among the boulders. Then they'd vanish and never be seen again. Helena and Paul never instinctively disliked or feared these people. But as Helena once articulated the problem, it's that you can hear them down there, whispering, right below your feet. It would have been easy to have the drifters removed, but they never called the police. As Helena once pointed out to Paul, who stood with phone in hand, ready to dial 911, what if it was Jordan down there? What if she just needed a place to stay the night? Paul had placed the phone back on its cradle, but not without saying, if she needed a place to stay, why wouldn't she call? Why wouldn't she come home? In the past, Helena would have supplied him with reasonable answers to these questions. It had once been a specialty of hers, but most questions that had anything to do with Jordan have become unreasonable as well as inexplicable. By the time Helena reached the stairs leading up to the back deck, people had started to arrive. They came with surfboards lashed to the tops of their cars, or with children, lathered in sunblock, trudging wearily across the sand. Helena climbed one step at a time, planting her feet securely before pulling the mermaid up to the next step. It took a long time, Sweat beaded on her forehead, and then dribbled down into her eyes, 
She could hear her own breathing, sharp intakes of breath followed by exhausted sighs. She wished she were younger, not slowed down by midlife. If I only had more energy, she thought several times a day, I could do more. As it was, she spent most of her days barely able to keep up with the house. Every time she turned around, there was a loose tile in the linoleum, or a burnt-out bulb that needed to be replaced. Even caring for these small tasks drained her easily. She spent all of her energy in her dreams, overnight, looking for... Jordan. By morning, she would wake exhausted, as though she hadn't slept. Finally she reached the deck, 40 steps high, where she sat down for a few minutes to catch her breath, arranging the mermaid's head on her lap. A few strands of hair trailed over the mermaid's face and Helena snatched at them, brushing them out of those dark, fishy eyes. And those eyes, a person could lose themselves in them, could dive down into their cold black waters and drown. She slid the back door open, then pulled the mermaid into the house. Her tail bounced up and down as it rolled over the sliding door track. Helena took her into the bathroom, heaved her tail up and over the lip of the tub, and followed with the upper half. The mermaid's skin squeaked against the porcelain. She ran cold water from the faucet until it splashed over the sides. It was enough. She'd done enough. She leaned against the tub and sighed, satisfied. Now for Paul. She would have to find a way to explain this to him as reasonably as she could. This was possible. This was reasonable. She had done something. She stroked her fingertips across the mermaid's bruised cheek and decided that in and of itself, this purple and gold blossom would win any argument with Paul. But before she could wake him, there he was. He walked into the bathroom still wearing his pajamas, grinding the sleep out of his eyes. Why all the racket? he asked, yawning. And when he removed his hands from his bleary eyes, Helena smiled up at him weakly and said, surprise. Paul was uncooperative, angry, and later he realized, a little unkind. Upon seeing his wife sprawled on the bathroom floor with that creature, he immediately thought of it as that creature, lounging in the tub behind her, he began to shout. What have you done? Where did that creature come from? You must be insane, Helena. Completely mad. Get it out. Get it out right now. She pleaded with him, he knew she'd plead with him, it was like Helena. These days, and practically begged him on her knees. You don't understand, Paul. She's hurt. She needs help. I found her on the beach. Just look at her face, the poor thing's skull has been battered. Please, you must. You have to. You must let her stay. An awkward pause followed during which Helena looked longingly into his eyes and spoke to him like that, with her eyes. It was a trick she'd always been able to pull on him, and each time she did he was helpless. Flustered, 
He fled the bathroom and went to change out of his thin blue pajamas. He wanted real clothes covering his skin. The night clothes made him feel caught off guard, vulnerable. They passed the day in a series of short, sharp spats, nearly all of which originated with Paul sliding around the corner to stand uselessly in the doorway of the bathroom. He'd stare at Helena pouring handfuls of water along the puckering gills of the mermaid's throat, the thin little slits opening and closing, drinking the air out of the water. Or he would comment derisively on finding her stroking the mermaid's hair, humming a wordless tune to soothe her, something she once did for their daughter when she was a little girl. And then Helena would stop whatever she was doing and say, what? What are you looking at? Go away. He told her he was going to take the mermaid himself and throw her back to the sea. He said, there are proper channels for dealing with these things, and you, my dear, have followed none of them. It was true. If she had notified the police, they would have said to leave the mermaid on the beach. They would have come and blocked the area off with sawhorses and yellow tape that had Do Not Cross printed on it in bold black. They had dealt with Murfolk before, years ago. The proper thing to do would be to wait for high tide to roll in and allow it to take her home. They decided to make a pact. Helena explained that she couldn't allow the mermaid to go back with the tide in this condition. She's unconscious, she argued defenseless. In this state, a shark or some other scavenging creature could pick at her. Paul agreed easily enough to that. He said, till she's well enough, then. And Helena nodded, accepting this proposal. Although, Paul thought, it was a reluctant nod. Till she's well enough, then, Helena agreed. Paul rolled his eyes at this childish bargaining and retreated to his study, hiding amongst his books, waiting for the moment he could get that creature out of his home. She was eerie. She floated in the tub like a corpse. He spent the next two days hunched over his desk, busying himself with preparations for the coming semester, creating his syllabi and course summaries, until he heard the squeals and screams in the bathroom announcing she had awoken. After something special of one's own disappears, a person should learn to be prepared for unexpected events. After Jordan disappeared, Helena came to feel, paradoxically, both ready to handle anything that might come her way, as well as on the verge of disintegrating into tears whenever she saw anything remotely reminiscent of her daughter. Because of these conflicting emotions, she found herself both willful and in tears as she struggled over a bra, black and frilled with lace, one Jordan had left behind, when the mermaid woke. You mustn't struggle so, she told the mermaid, who was attempting to tear the bra from her chest. Helena had covered her with it out of consideration for Paul. But the bra was too large for the mermaid, whose breasts were smaller, firmer than Jordan's, probably from all of that swimming she did. But it will do, Helena said. She grabbed hold of the straining straps and pulled the bra back on, tightening it like a wicked stepmother. It will do. 
Having trouble? Paul asked. He stood in the doorway, still holding a book from his study in one hand. Helena ignored him. The mermaid bared her teeth, two crooked rows of pearls, and hissed at them. Her bulbous black eye seemed even more bulbous now that she was awake. And darker as well, like two black moons. They were set far apart in her head, but turned inward a little, so that they seemed to be communicating to each other some deeply private, mysterious secret. I'm sorry, Helena said, waggling a finger in the mermaid's face. But there are rules in this house, young lady. We don't go traipsing around naked. Now it's time for some dinner and then you'll go straight to sleep. Consider yourself grounded. And don't ask for how long either. You've been worrying me sick. The mermaid's body was so long that her tail hung over the lip of the tub, drooping down towards the tiled floor. She still had ropes of seaweed tangled in her black hair, and sand speckled her skin, as though she'd been dipped in glitter. Helena reached out a tentative hand to stroke the mermaid's hair, but snatched it back when the mermaid suddenly opened her mouth in a wide O and began to scream. The scream spilled out at such a high-piercing pitch, the bathroom mirror shattered. It burst apart in a rain of jagged silver, clattering into the sink, onto the tiled floor. Pieces lay at Helena's feet, each one reflecting an individual eye, a patch of green scales, or a mouth, unhinged and opened so wide you could see the red wet skin inside. Even after the mirror flew apart, the screaming failed to stop. Helena clapped her hands over her ears and looked over at Paul, who had done the same. Stop it, she shouted as loud as possible. Stop it this instant. Her eardrums tightened and vibrated, thrumming. They were ready to burst as well. The mermaid gripped the sides of the tub, though, and threw her head back into a higher octave. Hesitantly, Helena lifted her hand and slapped her across the face. Then the screaming choked off. That's enough out of you, young lady, said. Helena. She looked at her hand, pink from the slap, then back at the mermaid, who clutched at her cheek. It was the same cheek, already bruised and swollen with dead black blood from whatever accident had knocked her out and washed her ashore two days before. Helena could tell it hurt enough as it was. Now she knew it hurt even more. Embarrassed, she stood and pushed her way past Paul, out of the room. Past Paul, who told the mermaid, that's a fine way to act, now isn't it? Helena tried finding things for the mermaid to eat. She experimented with seafood first, offering up a plate of lemon pepper whitefish on a bed of rice. But the mermaid wrinkled her nose and pushed the plate aside. When Helena brought her fried calamari, she hit her face underwater, and when presented with a bowl of fruit she pinched her nose between her finger and thumb. Paul chuckled when informed of this last reaction. She finds the scent of apples repulsive, he asked. And Helena shrugged, throwing her hands in the air. 
She has to eat, Paul, said Helena. She lay on the white leather couch in the living room, her head on the armrest, her feet elevated on pillows, exhausted. She'd been bustling around for the past two days with more energy than Paul had seen in her for the past year. Whenever she wasn't in the bathroom with the mermaid, she was fixing up the house. Patching cracks in the walls, polishing furniture, upending reclining chairs to sweep beneath them. There was so much to be done, she murmured as she went. She had let it all go, it had all gone astray. Let me have a try, Paul offered. Helena had been staring at the ceiling, at a brown spider-shaped water stain she wanted to erase, but she turned her head toward him when he spoke. You. She squinted at him. Yes, me, Paul said. I'll take care of it. Then he rose from his chair, grabbed his jacket from the hall closet, and left the house. Paul sincerely wanted to help, even though he was still angry with Helena. He couldn't stand to see her banging her head against walls over that creature. He'd been hoping she'd stop playing these games with herself. Over a month ago, he'd found a journal she'd been keeping secretly, in which she wrote long florid letters to their daughter or in which she wrote down detailed memories she wanted to capture before forgetting. He had found an entry that read, My memories flash over my mind, like lightning briefly illuminating a dark landscape. He hadn't known his wife was a poet. He still didn't know if she was a good one or not. And he had found, Dearest Jordan, I miss you so. When are you coming home? I found a coffee stain the other day and thought of you. Perhaps you made it, before you left. I'm not mad, though. We'll get new carpet. It'll be an excuse. She collected old newspaper clippings, stories from over two decades before, now yellowed with age. Articles detailing the resurfacing of the Murfolk. They had come with a message, although it took months for translations to occur. They didn't use words but spoke with squeals and clicks, like whales and dolphins. They were sad, they said. So sad to see us still walking on land. It looked painful and exhausting. And why, they wondered, did we continue to put ourselves through this self-imposed exile? It tortured them to see us torturing ourselves. Come home, they said. You've proven your point. All is forgiven. They had disappeared soon after arriving, had only stayed a few months. And soon after, people began disappearing as well. Or so it was said. Paul knew that Helena considered this to be a possibility with Jordan, that she'd gone down beneath the waves to join them. Others have, Helena said. A girl who lived down the street from me did. Martha. Martha Pachansky. But Paul didn't believe Jordan chose that route. A year ago now, the last time he saw her, she'd been living with a group of squatters in an abandoned tenement in LA. A friend of Jordan had phoned him, or someone who had once been a friend, 
and said she no longer attended classes at Uckler. That she'd hooked into a group, a bad group, the friend said. And that this is where you will find her. Paul went one day, without Helena, and found Jordan in a dreary room, wearing stained jeans, stained with what, he couldn't tell, and a threadbare t-shirt with the word Billabong fading on its front. She'd been a surfer, and still had her board with her even then. Her hair was matted into dull and frizzy coils, almost dreadlocks. He shivered, seeing her like this. Why, he had asked. And she had replied, stroking the board that lay across her lap, because it's all a lie. He asked what she was talking about, he wanted her to tell him what it was that was all a lie, but Jordan would not elaborate. She only stroked her board like it was a cat. She was high on meth, he discovered. He went home and told Helena, who shouted and screamed and immediately made him drive her to the place. By then, though, Jordan was gone again. Why didn't you bring me with you? Helena had demanded. Why didn't you let me talk to her? Paul had no answers for her then. He still didn't. He stopped at an Asian grocery a few blocks from their house, where he bought food and drove home between the roadside corridors of palm trees. At home he unpacked the items in his experiment while Helena scrutinized everything. All of it was Japanese food, she pointed out. I know, Paul said. Take this to her. He held out a clear plastic package filled with sheets of greenish-black, papyrus-like material, which Helena sniffed at doubtfully. What is it? she asked. Roasted seaweed, Paul told her. Martha. Martha Pachansky. The girl with the green eyes and blonde hair, the blonde hair that reached down to the small of her back. And those legs, those legs that turned anyone's head. 23 when Helena was 17, the girl who lived down the street, the girl who married into the sea. There were two stories about Martha Pachansky and Helena knew them both. One story said Martha drowned herself in the ocean. She had tied plastic grocery bags filled with rocks around her belt loops and walked out and out, into the waves, until they covered her head like a veil. She was a sad girl, some said, cut quite a tragic figure, had problems that no one else knew about. A person would say this while twirling a finger beside an ear. But Helena never liked those who insinuated Martha was crazy. The other story said Martha Pachansky had fallen in love with a merman she met while surfing one day. She'd been out early in the morning, her legs straddling the board, waiting for a wave, when his head burst out of the water. Like a dolphin or a seal. Some said it was her legs he had noticed from beneath, dangling in the water. The merman's eyes were like two black glass beads and his hair was moss green. His skin was ivory and his muscles moved beneath his skin like light rippling on water. If you kiss me forever, he told Martha, I can breathe for us both beneath the sea. And so she went, clasped in his arms, mouth on his cold mouth, 
his strong tail pushing them down deep, deeper, until they reached home. There she developed gills and a tail of her own and soon she forgot her former life. It was only in dreams, sometimes, that Martha possessed those head-turning legs once again. And in those dreams, her legs took her step by step back down to the water. A sea gift, Helena thought. What the sea takes, it gives back in return. She leaned over the edge of the tub and watched the mermaid devour sheet after sheet of the seaweed paper. You like that, don't you, she said. That and the raw shrimp Paul bought, and the tuna and the salmon eggs. She was a luxurious girl, this one. This mermaid here, now she was a fussy one. Over the past few days she had eaten her fill of the groceries Paul bought, she had calmed down a bit. With her stomach full, she'd given Helena this gift of proximity. She was allowed to be closer now, although the food had to keep coming. They fed her raw oysters, popping them into her mouth like grapes. The days were good, filled with peace and harmony once again. The only cloud obstructing their place in the sun was that several homeless people were sleeping under the deck again. Helena found them, or rather, heard them, whispering beneath the deck. Let them stay, she told herself. A sea gift, she thought. A gift from the sea. That and a neighbor had phoned to tell Paul he was bringing someone over to inspect his house. It seemed its foundation had been undermined over the past few years, and the seawall hadn't helped as much as they had hoped. Paul mentioned the call to Helena, but she didn't hear him. We should get ours looked at as well, Paul said. And soon. I start fall classes in less than a month. Do it then, Helena said. She didn't have time for that. She'd given up on the house to devote herself to the well-being of this girl, this beautiful girl in the bathtub. She ran a comb through the mermaid's dark, tangled hair. It was a silver comb, an heirloom handed down for generations in Helena's family. The mermaid seemed to enjoy it. She looked at the comb as though she might lick it. She seemed very partial to beautiful combs, Helena thought. Perhaps she lost her own in the accident? The mermaid grinned at Helena, showing those crooked pearls for teeth. She wagged her tail happily at the other end of the tub. She had accidentally knocked a vial of lavender bath salts off of a shelf at the far end of the tub the day before and when they fell in they had clouded through the water, turning it a light purple, perfuming the air. They had been. Jordans. And now she smelled quite like Jordan used to, Helena thought. A little briny from all of that surfing, and a little lavender as well. Something above and something below. The night before, Helena had had another dream. Invited to a talk show, by an uplifting, sentimental host, a woman who was soft and fleshy and obstinately maternal. The show was about people who had disappeared and the loved ones left behind. 
Paul refused to come, but Helena told the motherly host everything, her whole story, in front of a studio audience. The audience cried at all the sad parts, which made her happy. Somehow, she thought she'd told Jordan's story right. When Helena had finished, the host waggled her eyebrows teasingly and said, we've searched long and hard, far and deep, and we've found someone we think you'd like to see, Helena. A door opened on the set then, and out walked Jordan, young and beautiful, eager to be in Helena's arms. Tears were shed by all. The audience applauded and applauded again. And when all had quieted down, Helena asked, why, honey? But Jordan didn't answer. Helena smelled something fishy. She held her daughter out at arm's length. There was seaweed braided through her hair. The talk show host commented on how fashionable it looked. She asked, where to answer, but a scream spilled out instead. The scream spilled out and flooded the studio set, washed over the audience, and shattered the camera lenses. This broadcast was at an end. When Helena woke, her head was filled with static from a dead television channel. Helena began to hum a wordless tune, thankful that the dream hadn't been as futile as the ones that came before it. This one had a bit of hope. The mermaid now had finished off the seaweed sheets and was lounging extravagantly with her head nestled on the lip of the tub while Helena combed through her hair, freeing it of sea substances. Soon it would no longer be encumbered by kelp. A sea gift, Helena. Thought again. But now, thinking that, something made her afraid. What if she had gotten it all wrong? She wondered. She remembered the articles about the Murfolk resurfacing. They had said, you came from the sea and to the sea you shall return. But she'd been thinking of this process the other way around. Jordan had gone into the sea and returned. Certainly a little changed, but returned nonetheless. What if, and she cringed at this thought, what if this beautiful girl in the tub would have to go back? She had come from the sea. Would she have to go back? Helena couldn't bear that. She'd lost too much already. The mermaid had fallen asleep. A mucousy film slid down over her black eyes, clouding them, making her look blind. I need something from you, Helena whispered. Not much. Just something to remember you by, in case you have to go. She stood and padded out of the bathroom, returning a few moments later with a pair of orange-handled scissors. Kneeling beside the tub, she plucked a long tress of black hair away from the mermaid's face, lifting it to get at its roots. It smelled of lavender and of something dark and underwater. Sliding it between the mouth of the scissors, she gently squeezed them closed. Paul was on the back deck drinking a glass of bourbon when he heard the screams. At first he thought it might be another of the mermaid's fits, but soon he realized someone was in pain. 
He flew through the house until he came to the bathroom and grabbed hold of the doorframe to stop from running any further. Helena sat on the floor with her legs folded beneath her, holding a pair of scissors in one hand and a hank of hair in the other. The mermaid writhed in the tub, throwing her tail back and forth, cracking it against the wall. Paint flaked off, and plaster had begun to fall away as well. Green blood pulsed out of her scalp, pouring over her face. Shoes, please, shoes, Helena pleaded. I'm sorry, I didn't mean, I only meant. She reached out to touch the mermaid reassuringly, but was rejected with bloody hands. The mermaid squealed like a child. She screeched like a gull. She stuttered an annoying patter of clicks and stops, then moaned a deep mournful song that climbed steeply into a howl. What have you done, Helena? Paul asked. But Helena only shook her head, as if nothing was wrong. Nothing at all. That's enough, Paul said. He plunged his hands into the bathwater and pulled the mermaid out. His back strained and he nearly buckled over. Her scales scraped at his flesh and a pink rash, the color of a fresh burn, bloomed on the insides of his arms. It's no good, he told Helena. I'm sending her home. As soon as he made it to the back deck, Helena was up on her feet and behind him. Wait, Paul, don't do this. You don't understand. You don't understand. But he didn't listen. He stepped down and down until his feet reached sand, and then he headed off in the direction of the nearest pier. He could see its lights in the distance, like strange pearls floating in midair. No, Paul, Helena. Shouted as he stalked away, down the beach. But he didn't listen to her, only kept walking. She balled her hands into fists and hit the deck railing in front of her, then sat down in a chair and wept. What's happened, she thought. What's happened? And why all of that blood? Her thoughts raced in circles. She struggled to catch one. If she could only sort this out, she could stop things from progressing, she knew. But her thoughts stopped abruptly, interrupted by what sounded like voices. Beneath her feet. Beneath the deck. Go away, Helena murmured, but they continued to chatter beneath her anyway. Go away, I said. She raised her voice. She stamped her foot on the floorboard beneath her. Get out, she screamed. Get out of here. She stood from her chair and began jumping up and down on the deck. The boards twittered beneath her. Get the hell out of here. Beneath the deck, beneath her feet, they could see light from overhead, filling the cracks between the floorboards. Dust and sand sifted down between the cracks each time the woman jumped. Get the hell out of here, she screamed. And so they gathered up their sleeping bags and scrabbled down the boulders. Helena watched them go. They scurried away like beach squirrels or rats. She yelled at them once more, for good measure. 
Then they disappeared, swallowed by the night. Where was I, she thought. Green blood, she reminded herself. Start there. Find the thread and go back. What had happened? But before she could begin again, the house moved beneath her, disturbed by its dreams. It shifted and trembled, as if an earthquake were occurring. The windows rattled in their frames. Pictures fell from their walls. The cracks Helena had patched days ago reappeared. She stood in the doorway between the deck and the house and waited to see what would happen. For the entire length of the pier, Paul carried the mermaid in his arms like a bride. He staggered with her past fishermen with buckets full of sand sharks, past a cigarette stand closed for the night, past rollerbladers executing stunts on steps and benches. He walked all the way to the end of the pier, where a restaurant had been built as a tourist trap. People came here and went home to their friends and told them, I ate over the ocean. As Paul passed by its plate glass windows, the people inside pointed out at him, or pressed their faces against the tinted glass to stare. At the end of the pier, he lifted the mermaid over the rails and said, goodbye. For a moment, as he looked into her eyes, her face melted like hot wax and reformed itself into his daughter's face. He released her then, and she spiraled down to the black ocean like a green ribbon snatched from someone's hand by the wind. There was a splash, and then when he leaned over the rails to search for signs of her, he found nothing but the reflected yellow light from the pier lamp striping the black water. Back at the house, the house that now swayed and creaked like a storm-tossed ship, Helena had fallen into bed. Furniture scraped across the floors. Wine glasses dropped from their racks in the kitchen to shatter like icicles against the linoleum floor. The house was crumbling, sliding slowly down the cliffside. With each bump and unexpected movement, Helena was tossed around on her bed. The tide was sweeping in, hissing up to meet the house on the beach. Soon it would be high tide and the house would no longer be a house. It would be a boat. A houseboat. It would drift, unmoored, out to sea. By sunrise Helena expects she and the house will have already travelled some distance, but not so far out she'll be unable to step onto the back deck and wave to Paul, who will be on the beach. A tiny black speck scratching his head, wondering what was happening. She will wave to him with both arms, big enough for him to see. And then, because it's obvious now this house is unsound, it's cracks appearing everywhere, certainly not a seaworthy vessel, she will abandon ship. She will wait till sunset, when the sun floats over the waves, and then she'll jump so that Paul and any other spectators will see her as a silhouette against it. A red disc spread out on the white sky, like Japan's flag, and inside it, a graceful woman diving into the sea. She will take with her only the mermaid's tress of hair, tied around her neck like a choker. And perhaps it will gift her with powers. Perhaps it will enable her to breathe water. Then she will swim down, like the Pachansky girl, like Martha, that crazy in love girl from her youth, 
and she will search the coral kingdoms for Jordan. Perhaps one day she will wash ashore, a naked woman covered with nothing but her own bruises, who has been to the ends of the earth, to history, and back. And maybe someone will find her there and drag her home. Helena rocks on the waves of her bed. The house rocks on the waves of the ocean. She understands that going under with only a lock of hair in her possession is not the sanest plan. Still, she brings the hair to her face and inhales its salty lavender scent once more. She tells herself, it will do. I thank you for joining Mermaids today. No one will ever feel a bigger grief than a mother who lost her child too soon. Take care and have a lovely week, till next Tuesday. Mermaids has been read and prepared by me, Anna Karen Nina. Sinking deeper down and down in the sea of my sadness I've shut myself inside my own world There is no one who can find me here in a place like this I'm alone and that's the story of the deep sea girl Thank you.